Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi and welcome to today's episode of Climbing Consulting. In this one, I go all the way back to the beginning of Climbing Consulting almost five years ago for a round two with my first ever guest. And if you have listened to the podcast for quite a while, or frankly, if you've read the name of the episode, you will know who that is. Matt Chung from Clarisys. Having stayed in touch with Matt ever since he was kind enough to be my first volunteer, or you might call it a victim of my first interview, we have always talked about doing a round two. And it was the release of Matt's book, Trust and Patience, something we talk about in today's show, which finally led us to locking in a date and getting together for this conversation. Now, having previously talked about the origins of Clarisys and Matt's journey founding the business, something you can hear all about in episode one. We wanted to use this one to do something a little different. In this conversation, we talk about a whole range of topics that challenge the common orthodoxy in consulting. Matt shares his perspective on why these widely held beliefs are actually holding many people and consultancies back. We cover some fascinating areas in this one, including why Matt believes the traditional hierarchical approach to running organizations has had its day. We talk about the importance of being open and honest with your people, even in the difficult times. We explore happiness and why Matt thinks many consultants are unhappy and actually what it is that can make you find happiness at work. And finally, we talk about something that I don't know many consultancies who have done, which is why Clarisys decided to become an employee-owned business. This is just some of the things that we go into today, as well as Matt's book and why he decided to write it, all things you are going to hear about very shortly. So with the intro done, all that is left to say is please enjoy today's wide-ranging round two interview with Matt Chung. 
Well, Matt, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Nick. Really appreciate it. Delighted to be here. As we were chatting about momentarily ago, embarrassingly, so I had to count how many years it was on my fingers since we last talked. But 2018, a lot has changed for both of us, it seems. It's a heck of an office we're in. Yeah, the office has changed. Um, we've had a pandemic. My children are now nine and seven. Yeah, a lot has changed. And we're going to talk about that journey, but I, I noticed the gratitude trees at the front of the office, probably the first consultancy I've ever seen those <laughs> in. I don't know if it's worth exploring those now or if I pause that and we can, we can go into that a bit later. So a gratitude tree is an evolution of what originally was an appreciation wall. But when you get quite big, an appreciation wall becomes a problem because not everybody knows everyone. Only the people who are in the office can do the appreciation, even if you like it feels odd doing it digitally. And half the point is that you can see it. So instead, Rebecca has invented a gratitude tree to help people think about what they're grateful for. And um, I think one of the things was it somebody was talking about it and they thought, oh, I get, uh, sometimes I'm in a shit mood. And then I realize that I've had a great day or I'm just grateful for the fact that I had I don't know, cornflakes for breakfast. So the gratitude tree is an attempt to make sure that we don't lose sight of the positivity within our lives. When as consultants, typically, I think we like to focus on the negative quite a lot. We like to think about things that could be fixed. And actually, a lot of things that are in our lives are good things as opposed to things that constantly need fixing. I love that. And you've you've teed me up for one of our topics. Why don't we start there, actually, Max? I really like that. You know, when we spoke ahead of this, you you talked about consultants being happy and being a happy consultant. And I'd be interested to your point there, as you said, too often we focus on the negative. What does a happy consultant look like? And why do you think too many consultants aren't happy? What does a happy consultant look like? Well, I don't know what a happy consultant looks like as such. I think you have to ask each individual what is happy. So a lot of the work we've done about making a firm where people can be happy at work has been about extrinsic and intrinsic motivators. So based on some research that Dan Pink popularized and was actually based on something much more scientific, which name evades me right now. So extrinsic is all about money, titles, fame. Intrinsic is all about, well, the model says purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And we've added belonging into that, which was actually in the original research, but but disappeared in the book for some reason. And our postulation has been, if you can get, extrinsic is important, right? No, don't, don't get me wrong. You've got to, if you pay someone not very much money and somebody else outside is getting paid a lot more money, that person is going to be unhappy about that. But once you're at a point where salary is not really a thing, it's just you're paid enough money, you, you've just forgotten about it, then it's the intrinsic things that that make you happy, you can be paid a lot of money and still be miserable. So do you have someone micromanaging you? That almost will immediately result in you being unhappy. Although there are all sorts of different personality types. So it's important to recognize that as well, that there are people who like a lot of instruction. There are the opposite end who don't like any instruction at all. I am one of the latter. Purpose is important. So whatever I'm doing, I want to know that it's making a difference. I don't want to just be sitting there creating n excel sheets and then at the end of the day someone says oh you've created 50 excel sheets oh, that's nice can you delete them all please that's pretty demotivating makes people unhappy and their mastery so really i think we all want to get better at the things we do well whatever job you do you want to get better at it you want to feel that you're improving at it some of the most satisfying things are to realize that a year ago something took you five hours now it's taking you an hour that's a that's a good feeling i think everyone would agree with that or if you're playing a sport and you suddenly naturally can do something that you couldn't do a year before that's also a great feeling so if you can translate that feeling into work then that's that's awesome and the final piece being belonging humans as social animals i think one of the things that the pandemic a lot of the talk about the pandemic and working from home and that kind of thing underplayed the importance of just the social aspect of work. If you're sitting at home and you, the only other person you see during the day is your flatmate who you don't really like, then that's not really serving your need for belonging. So being part of a team, being part of a wider purpose, 
being able to have a bit of banter with your colleagues, just being able to solve a problem together or helping someone else solve a problem or someone else helping you solve a problem is a big deal. So if you can get that set of intrinsic things right, then people have a better chance of being happy. And by and large, we haven't designed the workplace for that. Some of this research has been around for a long time and there are workplaces emerging who are trying to go in that direction. But the world at large hasn't designed a workplace that has been with the idea that employees should be happy because I think historically we've all thought people were basically always going to work to rip off the company. And that's a bit about the contract between the employee and the company because often people feel like the company isn't fulfilling their side of the obligation, which at times is is always going to be true. There's a lot in there, Matt. I wonder, because you mentioned there, you've been on a journey to build that workplace. Which of those did you find, or how have you been able to build all of those into the culture at Clarisys? And and actually, which did you find hardest to get people, I don't know if aware is the right word, or acknowledging? Because a lot of this intrinsic motivation requires quite a personal shift in your approach as well as a consultant. That is an interesting question. So I don't think that in your day-to-day necessarily you're thinking about extrinsic versus intrinsic. You're thinking about how am I going to get a job done? And I think the first thing that you're asking people to do is to trust their colleagues. And I think you're asking them to assume good intent. I think Trusting that people are going to do what you ask them to do is quite hard for people. I think it's not always common for the people to joining us to be, have been trusted or to be immediately trusting that something is going to get done. And for me, it wasn't either. And partly that's a function of where people have got from a leadership point of view versus a management point of view. It is counterintuitive and is part of your career stage. Development as you go from perhaps more detailed management to leadership to have to be able to let go and say, Right, I'm going to help you understand the problem I want you to solve. And then you're going to solve the problem. And actually, there are N ways to solve the problem. And therefore, I'm going to butt out because you can probably solve it better than me. And also, in the long term, if you solve it with help when you need it, then you're going to be able to solve the next one. And that is better for me because. I don't have to teach you how to do it again. You mentioned there around when people join, they you, know, you have to build that trust because of where they've been before. And this isn't to draw, you know, to point fingers at wherever someone's been before, but to draw some generalities. If people have come from places where you know that trust isn't the normal, those intrinsic motivators aren't the normal, or take to the other way, extrinsic motivators are what are recognised. How have you? either hired for those skills or trained for those skills. So do you do something in recruitment that highlights people who will be able to trust or will follow, you know, will have that intrinsic driver? And if not, how have you coached team members to do that? Because ultimately you can only achieve what you're talking about there if you have the right people in the, you know, in the bus or on the bus, so to speak. So we hire obviously from a competency point of view, but also a value point of view. So I think one of our clients said, I really understand that what I'm going to get from Clarisys, you seem to have some recipe that means the person I get is very similar to another Clarisys person, which is great, right? Because that means we've been successful in finding the right blend. That's not to say that there's a lack of diversity. I think there's a lot of diversity in patterns of thought, but in value and behavior, I think we're pretty consistent. So there's something we do in recruitment. It helps to have an established pipeline. It helps to have people across the firm interviewing because you get a wide view of, of person's capability. I think talking about how we operate helps as well. So there are people who shouldn't join us because they won't like it because they are extremely individualistic or don't want to operate in a high trust environment. That part of recruitment is selling the firm to those to the right people and by giving lots of people information making sure they make the right choice for their career as well and not just us making a choice it's a joint choice to work together in the long term so things like i think a lot of people listen to the first episode of or the the original podcast we did i think as you go through induction we're now 
giving people more insight as they come through so they've accepted an offer. Here's what it's going to be like working at Clarisys. Understand that some of what we do is influenced by corporate rebels. And then when you join, our induction is still two weeks long. It's a lot of face-to-face or virtual meeting of people. It's trying to let you understand that what we sold you during the hiring process wasn't a mirage which some people find hard to believe and really trying to make sure that we're setting that person up to succeed so induction and meeting people and realizing that people genuinely like what they do that the firm stands for what it claims to stand for is pretty important in that process i think and then i think it takes a while for people to realize maybe six months the things that are truly different and that they will continue to be that way makes sense and you touched on the extrinsic motivators you're you're not going to lose those they're always going to be an element and to your kind of maslow's hierarchy of needs type example there comes a point where that's no longer the focus and i should probably know maslow's hierarchy off the off the top of my head but like my like my dates and my letters i'm gonna have to google it and i don't have my laptop in front of me but how do you then balance those extrinsic motivators because consulting again crude archetypes it's an industry where people get paid very well those salaries do grow significantly as you progress and for some i'm not going to say all the benefit of joining an industry like this is not where you are at 21 it's where you are at 31 or 41 and you know whether that's making partner in a big four or you know being the director of a firm that kind of there is a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow or that's how maybe you'll tell me that's not how it is or should be but that's kind of how our industry has grown up how do you balance that need for extrinsic motivators for grades for salaries for bonuses or if you don't balance it what do you do so grades i dislike grades intensely mainly because of the bureaucracy that comes with it but it is important to recognize that different people need different things and making sure it's fair and repeatable the way that the way you're going to promote people is really important so that's the most important thing from from a grade point of view salary wise so we we benchmark to market we've decoupled grade and salary because what we don't want is people pushing to be promoted just because they want a salary increase i think in any given year you as a consultant you'll have grown particularly if you you're early on in your career you're going to have learned a lot of things in the previous year you're probably worth more to the client than you were the year before and really salary reflects the value you you have to a client doesn't it so over time salary is going to increase and our what we're trying to do is benchmark to what the rest of the market pays and be relatively transparent about that and internally we are transparent about our pay in the sense that we publish the averages and the medians of it's probably median sorry and range of salaries that people are on at each level both from a diversity and inclusion point of view but also just because that allows people to see how they'll progress. And then as people get further on in their career, as their value to a client increases, then their salary can can increase and their value to the firm, then their salary can increase like that. What we don't do is heavily personally bonus people. So people don't have a, you know, 25% bonus based on whether they're going to hit a sales number or not. Because I think as a whole, we want to reward the collective and rather than the individual. Now you can agree or disagree with that, but that is how we've decided to do it. So our profit share is all about the overall profit the firm makes. And then we have a bonus, personal bonus that is under review at the moment because it wasn't quite achieving the things that we thought it would achieve, which was about growth and how much you'd grown as an individual. So can I ask what, why it wasn't having the intended consequence? Just Because we were asking for a level of honesty that it's quite hard to do. So we're asking people to self-assess. And if you've got financial motivation and you're asking to self-assess, then you're conflicted. So what we've tried to do is remove those kind of conflicts. It's a bit like in some cases you're, you're bonused on a sale. So you want to make the sale, whatever the, the cost, that means that you sell it at too low a price. You get your bonus, but as a result, your the team has to work super hard to deliver it. It gets delivered badly, and then 
cost increases, so actually you shouldn't have got your bonus in the first place. So you've got to be careful with financial incentives because they don't always have the outcome that you hope they will have. And if you take that back to the intrinsic side, is it really necessary to bonus someone? Because typically they're trying to do the best job they can. And if their job is to deliver some great work to a client or help a client solve a problem, then they're going to be only too happy to do that because that's where they feel happy. And so why don't we just get some of those things out of the way and let them feel happy about it? And we can take away some of the kind of bureaucracy that sits around that, which makes people unhappy. Makes sense. Reminds me. Have you read No Rules Rules by Reid Hoffman from Netflix? I read something from Netflix. I they had a culture deck that was very popular. Yes, I read the culture deck. So he read a book that kind of came off the back of that. But interestingly, at the time it was written, they also got rid of bonuses for the reason you highlight. And I think they I'll have to dig it out, but cite some research that there is evidence that people just prefer a larger salary as well. I think the variability is is tricky for people. Compensation is a whole like different ball game. And this works for us. I wouldn't claim that it was an industry specific solution. Well, and and just one more question, if you don't mind on it, Max. I, I find it I'm always interested to pick up on things that are different about guests and, and their firms. And, and you touched on you have decoupled salary from grade. And now, to your point of publishing, the end ranges and the the median, the mean. You you have to an extent created grades, but I assume it gives you that freedom of oh, we want to you know we want you to keep doing well. We're going to increase your salary, but it's not in a locked band that we can't go outside of. I mean, the obvious question then is. What are the unintended challenges that causes and how do you tackle those? You know, what do you peg it to if that's an easier question to answer? So you look at you look at the rest of the industry and say someone with three years experience is being paid between X and Y and a level of, I don't know, senior consultant, which means different things in different places, is between being paid between A and B. And those are two data points. And then within the firm, senior consultants are being paid between C and D, lots of letters. That means there's a big set of ranges there and typically they overlap. So your consultant level will overlap with your senior consultant and that's a positive thing because that means that people, as they're moving to the top end of consultant, actually the jump into senior consultant isn't a jump, it's a transition. And some people, different people behave differently, right? So there's a bunch of research that says women will self-promote less than men. So potentially it adds to a diversity point that actually you pay equality is partly linked to the fact that actually you don't have to be promoted in order to get pay rise, which means that then we're more likely to end up equal. And there are people who sit in senior consultant, for example, and just don't really want to get promoted, but they're doing work that's a a much higher level than that and the client is happy to pay for them at a different level that happens in all consultancies anyway it depends on how you feel about promotion and how much you care about it and like if you're hugely competitive then you're going to want to get promoted ha 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 and you're if you're not then you just want to do a good job then just go and do a good job and that's okay too i think there's a there's a point where you have to get yourself promoted because otherwise some other things around you start being a bit strange because you've got years and years of experience and then someone a bit more junior ends up being your coach. It's time we try and avoid that, but that becomes a bit strange. So there is a time when you should be promoted anyway, but that's for the right reasons as opposed to some artificial reason or just trying to win at all costs constantly, which is a bit frustrating to be honest. Yeah, makes makes sense, Matt. And something that it might segue into, and, and you can tell me, I had another note that you mentioned ahead of this when we were chatting, that, and this sort of feeds in a bit, that the standard approach to running businesses, while widely accepted, is something that you think is broken, something you don't agree with. And I help me with my timing here. So if this is a, that has changed in the last five years since we last spoke, what and why, if actually that's where you've been from, you know, from day one, why is it something that has come up today and yeah, why is it something that you disagree with? So it's something that's got stronger over the last five years. I think probably the last time we spoke, we were somewhere at the beginning of that journey. So most businesses operate under the illusion that there's a hierarchy that is effective in achieving outcomes. 
And typically that's siloed into sales, marketing, product, finance, et cetera. But actually the work that gets done is done in teams that work across all of those silos or within those silos. And so you end up with a matrix organization, but why not just recognize that work gets done in teams and make sure that teams are really enabled rather than focusing on the vertical? So I think right at the beginning of Clarisys, well, we didn't really know what we were doing beyond doing work for clients. So we were organized in teams around projects. And then as we got bigger, we thought, well, right, we need to organize more like the rest of the world and kind of like, well, okay, we'll try that. And that was awkward because then you've got some, like you start adding in predictability of role and you have to promote people around the roles and it doesn't really make sense. So then I think we went through a period of financial pain and out of that we looked at what the three founders were doing and what our implicit roles were and said, okay, we're going to structure a bit more, but we're also going to do a lot of team coaching and work out how we work together. And coaching has always been a part of Clarisys. It was part of Clarisys right from the beginning in a, a way that hadn't kind of been formalized, but tried to enable a set of intrinsic things we did, which we didn't know were intrinsic things at the time. So we've always been accidentally big on autonomy. So through that team coaching, we, we discovered a bunch of stuff. So we discovered some of the stuff talking about earlier about intrinsic and extrinsic. We discovered corporate rebels. We discovered team of teams. So this book by Stanley McChrystal, who among many things was a very successful general in, in US Army and his experience of combating Al-Qaeda in Iraq or fighting insurgency in Iraq was that the US Army was too slow because it wasn't empowering people on the edge to make decisions. And basically, most of our business models don't empower teams as much as they could do. You see this meme of the manager with the umbrella who protects the, his team from the shit around. Well, that's a bit disheartening, isn't it? If the only job of the manager is to protect them, their team from shit, surely the manager should be enabling the team to work really well with the rest of the organization who are also trying to achieve the same goal. So if we can enable teams to perform, then as a whole, we enable the organization to perform. And if we enable teams to perform, then we have to find a different way to make decisions because the decision-making tree becomes extremely complicated. And in the worst case ends up with me, in which case I have to make every decision and I'm not in any way equipped to make every decision. And I don't think anyone is. So the more we can get people within the team to make a decision and ask for advice on how to make the decision from other people who know stuff, the better. Now, five years ago, we were nowhere close to being able to say that. And it was unclear how you would organize. But the realization that somebody can be a member of multiple teams, you don't have to be a member of a team for life. Being a member of a team gives you belonging. It gives you all sorts of autonomy, different roles. You, you can play a different role in each team. It enables the interconnectedness of different people and gets away from the whole problem of scaling where if you go past 60 people, you can't know everyone. If you're intending to end up bigger than 200, which I think is probably inevitable, then you need a way for people to be able to interact with each other and get to know each other. And, and obviously consulting as a whole is aligned around teams. So as a whole, it makes sense for us. And I, to be honest, it makes sense for most of our clients. Most of their work is done in teams. It's just that it's not recognized as such and it's constricted by a set of things that have grown up over the years because they're based on how the army was organized or something like that. Like, yeah. No, and it is a great book. I did enjoy it. and. Just to help me, because others might be wondering, so I just want to clarify, when you're talking about teams in a Clarisys context, you are talking there of, I'm going to use the word functional, so the marketing team, the HR team, there are project teams as well, which would be more understood, but just trying to bridge that I'm for our listeners. talking about all of those teams, plus a set of other teams, like your coaching team, like the team perhaps of people interested in data, the team of people interested in customer experience, the team working around an account alongside the team working on multiple accounts and looking after those multiple accounts. Because in effect, at any one time, a given consultant is part of uh, at least three teams, if not more. Sure. 
and I should have probably asked this right at the start, Matt, but because it will be relevant context to this question, uh, sort of key stats, five years ago, you were how many people, five years on, how big are you? And, and the question will come to then how you've structured those teams of teams. But just for our listeners, yeah, where were you five years ago? Where are you now? Five years ago, we would have been less than 100. I think we were about 80. Now we are 215. In terms of structure, the only really recognizable structure is the coaching structure. So it looks hierarchical and really that's okay. The thing you're trying to avoid is hierarchical behavior. Um, in the long term, you could see potentially that that kind of hierarchy disappears. But in order to do that, you have to have pure salary transparency, and that is going to be a hard thing to do. So the team that people belong to when they join Clarisys is their coaching tree. That's the first team they belong to. Then they might join a project team. Sorry, what is a coaching tree? So if I've got, I am, I coach to six consultants at the moment, that's my coaching team and then their coaches to other people that becomes a tree we don't base it off the people i coach because then that would be half the firm and that would be wrong versus kind of trying to make sure there's a size where it works and we're still working through aspects of that and it's, it's not nothing is ever perfect and it's just sorry just because you again because of the terminology how does coaching and within that coaching tree differ from, uh, I don't know, line manager, career mentor, insert your, you know, is it, or is it interchangeable? Is it career or is it more coaching than sort of career and pastoral? So consulting special, isn't it, in terms of the way that people are organized. So as a consultant, you end up on a team, you have an engagement lead, they're in charge of your day-to-day, -day, they're really doing the managing. Our coaching model has almost always been there was the idea that you have time weekly with someone who is there for you to listen to what you've got to say, listen to the challenges you've got. That might be about the challenges on your client. It might be, actually, I want to achieve X, Y, Z in my career. How am I going to achieve that? Um, so it's relatively wide-ranging. Nowadays, it also includes the bits around how do we end up with paying you the right money? So it includes some aspects of what, in a corporate would be pure line management. And to some extent, the people who are lauded as the best line managers in corporate are the same as a Clarice's coach, but they are the, typically the exception rather than the rule. And what we've been trying to do is get to the rule rather than the exception so that everybody experiences the opportunity to grow as quickly as they can. So I wanted to go down that avenue just because you'd, you'd mentioned it. And again, as they are specific Clarice's terms, I thought they'd be useful for people. Back to the point around you know, the journey that you and the firm have then been on in putting in this this team of teams model, you know, the, the stru uh, structures I appreciate has a context in, in your world, moving away from hierarchy towards teams of teams. What, if you look back, were some of those key steps that helped you go from 80 in a, and I'm simplifying here, but a hierarchical organization to now 215 in a team of teams style organization? A lot of it was co-created. So I think in probably in the summer of 2018, we were talking about team of teams with everyone within the firm. What was it going to look like? What might that mean? What did we need to change? What was good already? How do we get there? Probably around the same time. We've always co-created values. So we, we might have also done purpose at that time. Actually, that might be one of the first things we did. And that has become, because that's co-created, that sits for each person in their own understanding of it in a very shared way. So this year we did values, sorry, probably middle of last year we did values. We've just done the 2030 vision for the future. So some of it is about making sure that people within the firm have their hand in where the firm is going, because that means then, then the direction is better understood and then everybody can help move towards that. Then we had a bunch of teams with, we, we run an OKR process within the firm objective key result that for internal stuff, stuff we're doing side of desk sets the direction. So we will have had a bunch of OKRs around, well, we had one for the Clarisys way in particular, which was about, well, how do we enable autonomy? How do we enable some of the things we talked about? 
And then really it was tweaking and partly it was realization that actually, because we grew out of an idea of how agile organizations work, how software development teams work, we weren't that far away from where we wanted to be. And it was more, right, now we can double down on that because that fits within the overall framework, if you like. Whereas before you're kind of thinking, oh, that doesn't feel right, but that's the way it's done. So we're going to do that like that. Like it's almost the bravery just to say, okay, this is working. Let's carry on working like that. And let's acknowledge that that is how we want to work. And then let's embed it in our values and embed it in just training. To be honest, we've already taught people a bunch of stuff about how teams collaborate. So let's continue doing that. But let's also teach them about how progressive organizations work and how you make distributed decisions and where is that not working and listening to what, where it works and where it doesn't. And it's uncomfortable, right? And sometimes it's uncertain for people and, but that's probably better. And the level of transparency that it puts on us means that people have better ability to make decisions and understand where the firm is going than, than in many of the other models, I think. And on that journey, were there any particular inflection points where, because scaling is a challenge for whatever model you choose, were there any particular inflection points where you had to adapt to this approach, be it 100, 150, 200? I don't think team of teams has had to adapt. I think the catalyst for for moving to team of teams was partly that financial crisis I talked about in that providing transparency to people on budget numbers, on how you're doing against them, et cetera, et cetera, allows people to make adult decisions. And a lot of the, oh, we're going to hide this data, it's private, is partly a way it, it ends up with people being treated more like children than like adults. So this data is too important for you to understand. You won't understand it. Therefore, we're going to keep it away from you. We're not going to share how the firm is doing month to month, or we think it will scare you and you'll want to run away, or you will realize how much money we're making and not paying you, et cetera, et cetera. A bunch of things, which in reality, people are pretty smart about, pretty mature about, and are entitled to make their own minds up about because there is a contract between the employee and the employer that goes both ways. So I think the fundamental thing was things change every day, but by and large, it's a case of saying, okay, so did you ask the right people to try and make the decision? Have you thought it through? I struggle to put my finger on something we've got completely wrong from a team of teams point of view, at least. I think you mentioned it earlier, making sure you hire the right people. And then if they don't fit, making sure they leave is quite important. And there have been a couple of instances where, for whatever reason, some people have had to leave. But by and large, it's, it's a pretty flexible model that works. You mentioned it a couple of times now, and I, I'd be interested to talk about it just because it sounds like the catalyst for a lot of your journey that you mentioned those financial challenges. Could you talk a bit more about them? And I'm at pains because I've been told off by previous guests for this. I'm not going to compare it to the current economic period because I don't want to be part of the doom and gloom that the, the mainstream media is, is portraying. But for your own journey, can you just talk about actually that time? And I guess to some of those things you talked about, you've talked about what it catalyzed, but almost how did you get out of it to be able to then have the success you have? So this would be about 2015. We were probably 40 people at the time. We'd overhired at the beginning of the year, I think. We got overexcited and thought that there was more demand than there was. One of our big clients suddenly stopped a project that, that we had a bunch of people on, and that left us exposed. Whilst other people's memories of this is different from mine, I don't think we shared as much as we could have done with the rest of the team about where we were, what our options were. So we hung on. I found it very stressful. My son was two at the time. I remember just not being able to kind of really relax. And I think Miriam, my wife, was pregnant with my daughter. I don't think it was great timing. We were rapidly running out of cash. We'd had a good year the year before, so there was a bit of a shock absorber there. We just didn't ask for help from the rest of the team, which is pride or they'll lose faith in us or they'll just want to run away and get different jobs. And actually running away and getting a different job solves the problem because the 
salary is no longer on the payroll. And I think you're getting close to the point where you're looking at the firm saying, if we have to shut this down because we don't make enough money, I'm not sure I'm going to have the energy to do it again. And as it happens, we won a project. It was at risk, but that meant that we knew that there was a pretty good likelihood that that money was going to come through. That money eventually came through and happy days. But there are a few other things. So one of the things that caused that problem was a, the, the VAT accounting changes when you get to a certain size. So you pay in advance or in, in arrears, I can't remember which. And that caused us a bit of a cash flow problem. I don't think we'd been on top of cash flow as much as perhaps we are today. We weren't at the time using invoice financing. I think the vast majority of consulting firms should be using invoice financing, which is where a bank pays you some of the money for an invoice you've issued to your customer when you issue the invoice. And is it just because you are actually the first guest, I think, ever to mention invoice financing? Is that just simply cash flow? You know, you, it's not net 90, it's yeah, straight away. Straight away. If you're growing, they obviously take a haircut, but if you're growing, at what at the time we were probably doubling or 60-70% year on year, then unless you're you've got some deep pocketed sponsor, then that's hard from a cash point of view, because basically you're always slightly running ahead of yourself. So that to be honest, that should have been in place. Just hadn't figured that out. And and some of that comes from thinking about the bright side of stuff rather than the, the dark side of stuff. So if you compare that to today or you compare that to COVID, we were much more transparent. We asked everyone to help to figure out how to get through that period. We COVID was a special one-off, right? So whilst we used furlough, we also, everyone took a, a pay cut for a period of time and then we repaid some of that. And then we went into a variable pay period. That's, that's, that's not a normal circumstance. I think this year has been tricky as well. So. The overriding piece really is being honest with your people means they understand where they can help and what they can do and being transparent with them about where the firm is allows them to make decisions for themselves about their life. It's not a sign of disloyalty if they think, "Mm, we're not going to be that busy. We need to look for work elsewhere or actually I'm going to go on sabbatical for six months because that's going to help the firm because that's going to reduce the wage bill. And it's a very different thing for a 200-person firm versus a 10,000-person firm, where the 10,000-person firm is much more of an institution and in many ways is much more secure. So the bond between employee and employer is different and changes as you grow. So I think now it doesn't seem faced with a similar crisis or something something like that. It wouldn't seem so existential and... uh, part of having run this kind of business for a while now is that you have to just go again right like so it's hard you can see that from the failure rates around small businesses particularly within consultancy so it's about being smart it's also about being resilient and being able to push back it's the same for a consultant right you have a good project you have a bad project like you have to be incredibly resilient so the same is true of the firm itself that is definitely a learning over the last 10 years. You mentioned there about the bond between employee and employer, and it touched on something I wanted to talk about, which was your ownership structure change, which again, helped me if I'm, I'm got the dates from, but I think happened later the year we spoke. So I think it was 2018. Is that right? Yeah, I think it happened towards the end of 2018. So we, we became an employee ownership trust in 2018. So the employee ownership trust is a piece of legislation the government developed kind of based on the John Lewis model where everyone within the firm owns the business. Um, there are no shares involved. It's just that the the trust owns, in our case, 60% of the business for the benefit of employees. Um, and that meant that the three founders sold those shares to the trust. From a governance point of view, that means that there's a trust board whose job is to make sure that the board itself is acting in the best interests of employees and in the best interests of the firm and the long-term benefit of the firm. Now, it's a really nice way of ensuring the sustainability of the business in the long term of allowing founders to exit. It means that we as founders could remain, could be assured that we would remain true to 
our values and the reasons why we set Clarisys up. So, you know, you could add external financing in, but that feels like an unknown and a risk and I might be wrong, but that means that we can flex possibly more than we should at times, but to make sure that we are looking after our people as best we can. From an employee's point of view, you get any bonus becomes tax-free up to seven and a half grand or similar. In the long term, what happens is that the profits of the firm get distributed to the employee ownership trust, and that means that they can be spent according to whatever the EOT board decides on, which could be big bonuses, could be pay, who knows. We haven't reached that point yet because we're still working through the debt involved with the transaction, but that's probably not that far off. That might be three years off now. So it's a great model, I think. We, by and large, from an employee experience point of view, we're already in quite a progressive place. So you hear some people turning into EOTs and then doing a bunch of work to become more employee-centric, no, more employee-friendly. We felt we didn't need to do as much of that. It was more about kind of putting our money where our mouth was and saying, this is the future of the firm. It's not to sell it to someone else. It's not to be acquired, et cetera, et cetera. It is that. it will be a thing for as long as employees want it to be a thing. And so I think questions, and I ask these more as things I wonder people might ask or may have asked you actually, Matt, you might have had, I suspect people before I go on, I suspect some people have come to you who run consulting firms and asked you about this model or have they not? Because it actually is very uncommon in our space, I would say. It's common in other professional services lines, architects, engineers, etc. I tend to agree. I haven't come across as many consultancies. So you touched on one of the questions I would have had. And, and by the way, hold up a hand if I go into areas I can't. You you touched on the kind of the debt to fund it. So presumably the EOT buys your shares through debt that is then being repaid through the paid down through the profits. Is that yeah. the model? So kind of the the funding model makes sense, I guess. Again, this might be a non-question, but in the typical consulting model, you know, part of that carrot, and again, I appreciate I'm putting my foot in my intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation mouth, but is to become a partner. You know, people go into the, the industry and part of that, be it cachet, but largely be it salary. And a lot of our industry is based on there is a financial incentive, which I, I, I think in part the model you you disagree with. But how do you then tackle that in an EOT model where, to your point with the John Lewis model, you know, everyone is entitled to a share and actually... Does everyone get an equal share? How does that work? So that is up to the EOT to some extent, right? So what you're trading is, and partly because the firm isn't as old as some of the other firms, it probably has the potential to pay people competitive amounts of money. It just hasn't quite got there yet because our average age is lower and so a bunch of factors, right? So the EOT can decide how to distribute profits. But in effect, if you look at the partnership model in general or in any exec remuneration model, is it fair that the entry level person gets paid 35 grand a year and the most senior person gets paid 1.4 million pound a year? Yes, it's about risk and pricing risk, but is that actually fair? Is the proportion of work being paid for there and i would probably argue no because in some some of those scenarios the level of risk being taken isn't necessarily commensurate with the pay i don't work in one of those organizations so i can't comment but i would be uncomfortable being paid 30 40 times what the most junior person gets paid like that doesn't seem right and okay maybe i'm a closet communist or closet socialist i don't think i am but i would be happier if you know there's a separate we get paid for a fair amount of money and you know from my own personal perspective yes i took a really big risk in starting the firm and i'm still personally liable for a bunch of stuff within it so i'm okay from a like eventually when i sell to eot that will be a bunch of money but equally, that risk was spread over multiple years at the beginning where I didn't take very much salary at all. So, And is that the long-term direction for, you mentioned you, you still have, or the, the founders have 40%, is the direction to turn that into a full 
100% EOT at some point? Yeah, the aim will be for the EOT to buy the remaining shares because then the firm is in its own hands and succession, etc. are all part of that. And there's no longer, you know, it's it's not a family business or a founder-influenced business anymore. The idea is it's here in 100 years and part of the way to do that is to, to use that mechanism. And you, you touched on it around you did a lot of the the things to be employee and before you became employee and for anyone listening you know, this might be the first time they've thought of this almost what what are the conditions that need to be true or you really should have as true before you embark on this route to make it a success i think legally there aren't any you can be as nasty as you like to your employees you can rinse them for everything they've got and you can still become an employee ownership trust and you can use that mechanism to extract your money and you can be happy if you're morally able to compute that. What you see is that some, it kind of comes back to, you know, there are examples of people going to an employee ownership trust from a very micromanagement type environment. And, and for me, the set of values around employee ownership is about empowering employees and making people own part of the business. That's not compatible with micromanaging someone. So I think there is a, how are you going to empower your employees to make decisions that impact them in the long term? For me, would be one of the things you make sure is in place before. And I think you've got to have a vision of where you're going How from a founder's exit point of view. Is it that you want to create something that exists for a long time or is it actually this is part of your exit and you don't really care what happens afterwards. I think you have to be clear about that. I think uh, it depends who you are, right? You can do it just because you want the money or some of the things we do aren't anything to do with being an EOT. There is a question in that EOT model to your point around when the founders have left and what you said around having a clear direction. How do you ensure that actually people then do carry on that direction. You know, it's the it's the kind of public good, it's the free rider argument. You know, why don't we pay for street lamps? Because if you didn't need to, no one would. In some ways, as a you know, as founders of the business, you have a disproportionate level of investment, personal, financial, etc., and therefore care. And this isn't meant as kind of a almost directed at Clarisis, but a general question that I'm sure you've got a thought on. In a world where suddenly two hundred people own it, how do you ensure that it doesn't become that nobody owns it? I think, to be honest, everybody cares. So people who don't care, don't care because something has been violated about their relationship with their employer. Either they've been dealt a bad hand or the faceless it has become involved. So there are lots of places where that happens for one reason or other. And that's one of the assumptions that I think is wrong about the world at large. Like people care about their jobs. Like I did a podcast the other day with um, Catherine Stagg Macy about why, what's cool about work. And you've got to get away from this idea that being good at your job and liking what you do is like being the uncool kid at school. It's not, right? Like it's great that people like doing what they do. And people should be happy at work because they spend a lot of time at work. And part of that is taking care and pride about yourself, about your workplace, about your team. It's also about when something you don't like is happening, going and telling somebody else that, that you don't like that thing is happening. You know, we had a big debate about alcohol at socials because obviously every now and then you get a social that goes out of hand. And yes, we could ban alcohol at socials, but that's treating people like children again. Why not just say, look after your colleagues and hold each other to account about how you want to behave? So the same is true for the firm as a whole. The same, to be honest, is true of democracy and the world at large, right? Like it's very interesting that the American idea of making decisions at the most local level around the state, uh, the city, and then the state, and then federal actually resonates a lot with me from a point of view of how you organize as firm. Now, there's lots of things that have gone wrong with that, but that's largely through kind of entrenched needs. But also, one of the reforms of the NHS in the early, what, in the Blair government was about, well, this thing is much too large. How do we decentralize decision? Because we're confusing ourselves with perfection by trying to make decisions centrally that actually only local 
can locally be made. That's why communism failed, right? Because you're trying to plan, what, 150 million people centrally. That was never going to work, was it? Because all of those people want slightly different things. Whereas if you let each individual team of people deal with it for themselves, and then where you get something big, you have to have some kind of conversation across that set of people to say, what is the right thing to do here? That will nearly always work. So, and I agree with you, by the way, I asked some of these questions largely to get perspective, um, but I, I do agree. I think you know, most people do enjoy their job or should. And I, I think it is, there's nothing sadder than not enjoying what you do, given you spend or what you do for work. I hate to add, given you spend 40 plus hours of your life there. And most of those 40 are the waking hours you have because half of the time you're out of here, you're asleep. I guess the other side of that then with a kind of positive slant is, have there been any, any unexpected benefits as a result anything that you didn't you, know, you didn't think would happen or that's been amplified in your culture and just yeah anything that has caught you by surprise in a positive way i think there are probably lots of little things i think there's a lot of pride in feeling that people are owners of the business i think it's hard to put your finger on you know the big things what i what makes me proud of the firm as a whole is the way people within Clarisys will explain what the firm is about and how it works and we'll have a big argument about i don't know the client to work for based on you know maybe they're an extractive industry or something slightly controversial but that argument will be with values at the center of it it will be largely respectful for each other there are obviously times when you know there's a little bit more emotion than perhaps there should be and it's that passion for are we doing the right thing are we delivering on our purpose are we doing it in a way that is respecting each other and respecting our values, whether that is because we're an EOT or just because that is what we have tried to do for years. I don't know, but that is the thing that is standout for me. And my last question on this, Matt, and, and again, this is simply because you're the first person I know who has done this. When people sell a business, they use an advisor, and I've had many people recommended on the show do you use an advisor? Did you use an advisor? Do you just do this on a government form? Um, I, <laughs> don't, I don't too, want the blow by blow, but yeah, the summary. It's too complicated to do on a form and the tax implications are, are quite nasty if you get it wrong. So we used a firm called RM2. They specialize in, in EOT type stuff. I think the concept is the most difficult bit to get your head around. So I think in retrospect, that's probably why it's necessary. I think some of the legal stuff is partly a bit overcomplicated and could have been simplified. But you have to value the firm and you have to work out a bunch of stuff and you have to make sure you're within the legislation. So don't do it without some form of advice. That would be strange and hard. Well, I will put RM2 in the show notes. I'll encourage people not just to try and do the form themselves. So one last thing, and, and this probably Matt, brings us nicely to an end of, of the journey we've talked about actually today. And this might be the accompaniment to our show is your book. And this was, I know, what prompted me to drop you a message and say, it's probably been five years, Matt, maybe we should chat again. What led you to write it? I am conscious that as you build a firm, you make a bunch of decisions and some of them are unconscious, some of them are conscious. And what I was worried about was that you get to a point where people don't understand why you made those decisions and they, the reason why is lost in the mist of time. So what I wanted to do was to provide for when I'm not here and for when other people that were in the firm right at the beginning weren't here and to try and distill the reasons why certain things are like they are. That was the primary reason. So for Clarisys employees of now and the future, this is why Clarisys is like this, kind of empowering people to make a choice and decide whether or not the things that are written about, the things they still care about, because if they're not, then they should move on and change them. And if they are, then that's why they're like that. Secondly, I think uh, I'd always wanted to write a book. I thought it was going to be a fiction book, but it was like a childhood dream of wanting to write a book. And it turned out writing a non-fiction book about some stuff we'd already done was a lot easier than attempting to write a fiction book. So you weren't tempted to make a fiction book about consulting for <laughs> I didn't even think about it. So that is why I wrote a book. It primarily was for internal use, but is available on Amazon for anybody to read. Most people have said at least to my face that they enjoyed it. And behind my back I've no idea what they said. So 
it's really a manual of of how Clarisis works and our journey to that point and tries to draw out some of the things we've talked about today. And the answer to this might be a tautology, but why the title? Why trust and patience? We talked about trust earlier. I think trust is one of the biggest things that can enable a set of people to come together. And any firm growing has people have to trust each other because otherwise it's just a horrible place to be. Being a consultant typically means you're used to short projects that you can solve the outcome to and you can get to within a certain time frame. When you're building a business, what you're building is something that incrementally gets better. It's much more like the product world of, of software development than it is about a transformation project. So patience is about the fact that we're in a business of people and people grow fast and slow, but someone joins us at 21, 10 years later, they'll be 30 something. That's a long time, but equally they'll have learned a lot of stuff over that time, but they won't have learned it all in one go and they'll have made multiple mistakes and fixed them and incrementally got better. And the same is true of me. So patience is about not thinking that everything, the world is going to end because you got one thing wrong. It's not celebrating because you got one thing right either. It's about the slow building of something that's going to be there for a long time amazing well like you say i think a really nice place to round us off and i i feel i should ask because i did have a look at your poster albeit on the screen outside ahead of this and to your point around patience we're going to get together in five years time matt where will clarisis and where will you be when we uh, we have that round three there's a 2030 vision for clarisis that's quite bold so hopefully we'll be close to achieving that hopefully the firm will still be proud of its culture of its values and and still believing in itself who cares about how many people there are as long as it's profitable and it's making its people happy and it's making its clients happy in the end that's what matters me i don't know i will be 50 something so i don't set myself a time frame that far out I just go with three years or so, and for the moment, that is enough. I think for the health of the firm, we should be in a position where should I get run over by a bus or suddenly decide I've had enough, certainly before then, we should be in a position where that doesn't matter, obviously, operationally as opposed to emotionally. It would be terrible for our reunion podcast if that happens. It would be with a coffin, which would be unfortunate. They don't tend to talk very often. So... Uh, Yeah, for me, I don't know. We'll see. Fantastic, Matt. Well, last two questions. You'll remember these from, or you might not remember them from five years ago. I won't be offended, but I think we've probably got to tweak them slightly because we did this in round one. The first one is books, and we've touched on quite a few of those. I know last time we talked a lot about kind of the Agile Manifesto, very much the books that had that impact, you know, Seven Habits, um, Thinking Fast and Slow, the kind of the books that got you to where you were. We've touched on some of those other books like Team of Teams, but I'll ask it anyway. What are, over those five years, those books that have had that impact on you, you gifted to others? What what would you recommend people go and look up as a result of those last five years? Frederick Leloux, Reinventing Organisations, Daniel Pink Drive, Corporate Rebels, Making Work Fun, I think, Amy Edmondson, whatever the psychological safety one was in the middle. I think those are the ones that, and and that Stanley McChrystal book. Oh, and David Marquet, Turn the Boat Around, which is about how he took over the worst performing submarine in the fleet and turned it into the best performing boat in the fleet, which was quite impressive. I've spent a lot of the last five to seven years reading organizational design books, and not all of them are that interesting, to be fair. Well, that David Marquet one around submarines sounds fascinating. I do... I do like a military book that applies to business, as Stanley McChrystal's does. And yeah, when you've introed it like that, it definitely sounds intriguing. And then the last question, and again, I'll ask this, and, and it's more if there's things that have changed in those last five years. You have three people in front of you, and I'm going to have to use grades, but you can you can take this as you want, Matt. You might tell me that that isn't the structure, but one of those is that analyst or graduate who's joined you. One of those is... Oh, I'm going to say four to seven years in, I know them as a manager grade, but to your point in our conversation earlier, grade is probably not a great measure for this. And the third is one of those senior leaders, you know, someone who might be joining your leadership team or, or becoming a partner or you know, someone on a leadership team of a consultancy. And, and the question is, what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? To the analyst, I think 
don't worry too much about the project you go on in the first couple of years. You can transform any project into the thing you want it to be and your career into the thing you want it to be over time. The choices you make in the first two years are, are not going to impact your 10-year horizon. So doing work with people you admire and can learn from is much more important than the actual content of a given project. So that person in the middle, you've got to think about how are you going to scale yourself? Working all the hours isn't the solution. So somehow you're going to have to let go of some of the control that you've built up over the years and the faith in you doing your own work and let that go to your team and enable them to do the work rather than you. The senior leader, not all of the things that you've learned in the other firms are true. That isn't to say that Clarisis knows the answer to all of the things, but there is a different perspective that you can take into it. And some of the things that, that Clarisis does is counterintuitive, yet works. And so you have to perhaps be a bit more humble than your default is and allow yourself to learn and absorb the environment around you in order to be able to help the people around you. It's hard to give advice at the most senior end because typically by that stage, people are quite unique. So the things they need. It's, it's a, it's a non-generic statement. The other two are much easier. Often the person at the senior end will be a particular shape and it will be a specific thing that they need help with rather than like platitude. I, I think a very good point. And, and thank you for all of those, Matt. And, and then I don't really think I'll ask this as a question. I'll almost ask you to tell me if it's wrong, but you gave your details, you gave your, your LinkedIn, your, your email, your website in episode one. I appreciate some people might have found the show within that five-year time frame, so I might not have gone all the way back to episode one. I'm assuming they're still the right details, and if I put them in the show notes, people can still get to you. Have there been any new details? Is there anywhere else people should look? I don't think there are any new details. <laughs> well, Matt, thank you. This has been great fun. I've really enjoyed catching up, and all that's left to say is all the best for the rest of your week. Thanks very much, Nick. Really enjoyed it. Look forward to the next one. See you in five years, Matt. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.